So this week's a little help from my friends is a sermon by my friend Russ Whitfield. He's a pastor up in Washington, D.C. called Grace Mosaic. And this is a sermon that he preached at RUF Summer Conference a couple of years ago that I was there for and just absolutely loved. And I hope that you will love it too. Let's open up to the book of Acts chapter 8 for our text this evening. The book of Acts chapter 8. And you can find this up here on the screen or you can tap that app and get your text there. Again, we need to hear the whole story, y'all. This is one big segment and we're going to read this and lock in with it, all right? This is God's word. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? 
And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Raise your hands and pray with me. Father, we come to you because we believe that as we sit under your word, you can push back the darkness in our hearts. You can... You can shine your light in. You can dispel confusion. You can strengthen new obedience. You can soften our hearts. You can change us and mold us and transform us by your word through your spirit. And so that's what we ask for right now, Lord. We want to hear your word and we want to do your word. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. God, we pray that you would do more than we were expecting during this time. We pray that You would set people free. We pray that you would embolden and empower your people. We we pray that you would equip us to live as your people in the world. We ask for your grace in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, Newsweek magazine ran an article about a, a memorial service that was held for Hubert Humphrey, who was a vice president at one time. And there were people from all around the world who were coming to pay their respects to a colleague and a friend. But there was one man who was invited to the party who was, who was by himself. Everyone was ignoring him. No one was really even casting a glance on him. And this man was Richard Nixon. This was shortly after the shame and the infamy and the scandal of Watergate. And here is Nixon in a room full of people all by himself, standing up against the wall, rejected on the outside. But then something very surprising took place in that room. Because the then sitting president, Jimmy Carter, walked into the room and he scanned the room. And when he laid eyes on Nixon, he made a beeline to him. And as he approached him, a a big smile grew on his face. He extended his hand as if he was walking toward family. And he embraced Nixon and he said to him, welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home. And in the Newsweek article, they they commented upon this surprising episode by saying this. They, They said, 
If there was a turning point in Nixon's long ordeal in the wilderness, it was that moment and that gesture of love and compassion. From a very early age, you and I begin to learn the social skill of determining who is in and who is out. We learn it from a very age. We see it happening on the playground. We, we begin to learn from an early age who is welcomed and who is not. We see who is included and who is excluded. We, we make these determinations about people. And, and, and a lot of the time, it's not even conscious. We learn it from our parents. We learn it from the, the, the culture that we grew up in. We all make these decisions about who is an insider and who is an outsider. And once we get that label hung upon that person, we treat them accordingly. We all do this. This is this is native to the way we work. And all of us probably at some time and in some way have felt the joy of being an insider. We felt the warmth and the, the, the goodness of being a belonger. And all of us probably at some time and in some way have felt the pain, the sting of being an outsider, of being a reject of some sort. And this is particularly felt in spiritual communities. It's one thing when we see it happening on the playground But it's another thing when we see it happening in local churches. It's another thing when we see it happening on campuses, in campus ministries. The decision, the the choice to include some and exclude others. And a lot of times, some of the most vicious hatred, some of the most calloused action is not the act of animosity that we demonstrate toward other people, it is the disinterest and the ignoring of the other, as if they're not even there, as if they they aren't even important, they don't even matter. We all know this pain. There there is research that has been done by psychologists that, that says that the brain registers the pain of rejection and being an outsider as much as it registers the pain of a broken bone. But the irony that we witness in God's story is that God is constantly surprising us with the guest list of the kingdom. He is constantly surprising us because he includes those whom we would exclude. He welcomes those that we would push away. He involves and brings close those that we would keep at arm's length. He is not like us. His ways are not our ways. And he is constantly surprising us. But here's the deal. God has always had the world on his heart. And God is determined to see the world brought in to his saving love. But but you could sit here and nod your head and agree with that. And say, yeah, that's great. Do your thing, God. But you got to realize that God accomplishes this work through means and his primary means through which he demonstrates his love to the outsiders of this world is through his church. So to be 
in his church to be a belonger in the Christian faith is to be someone who seeks to extend that welcome and that belonging and that inclusion to the marginalized of this world. That is the the main thrust of what we're going to get after tonight as we consider God's word to the outsider. What is God's word to the outsider? Here's the short to the point. God's word to the outsider is this. You belong. And it is our calling as God's people to communicate God's word to the outsider. That's our calling. That's what God wants from his people. That's one of his chief designs in drawing his church together. And so we're going to approach this text for tonight by by getting after two points. We're going to hear God's word to the outsider. And we're going to consider what it means to share God's word with the outsider. We need to hear God's word to the outsider. And we need to think about what it means, what it looks like to share God's word with the outsider. And before we start, I want to say some things up front. One, I think this is one of the most important texts you could ever get into your soul. I think I think the message of this text is one of the most important messages that you can get into your text. Get into your heart. Sorry. I think this is a critical message for us to believe and to embody as God's people. I I, I think that it's one of the most profound ways that God has designed to spread his gospel as his people live together in love and demonstrate the gospel in an audiovisual way through this message of belonging in the gospel. I think it's an important message for you to lock on to. And I think it, it could be one of the most transformative things that happens in this ministry of RUF that is spread across the country. I think this, and I said this in the last group toward the end of the sermon, but I'm going to say it up front here. I think that the greatest work of RUF is yet to be done. And I think it's going to be done through the explosion of a cross-cultural love that ripples out through the campuses of this country. That, I think, is the most profound work that is yet to be done in the life of this ministry. When we see that globalizing effect take place in RUF, I want to encourage you. I think that that could have a mark not only on campuses across the country, but in churches around the country. I think that that RUF could have a profound effect on the life of the church Many old-timers are pretty baked into their way of thinking about the faith. But you have an opportunity to bring fresh life to God's church by asking and bringing the kinds of questions to the Scriptures and to the Reformed faith that are on the hearts of the people around you. Thinking about the faith in terms of the people around you and how, how do we need to think about the gospel in fresh ways What aspects of the gospel have we yet to explore through this cross-cultural lens? I think this this text is like, is money for this. And I I want you to listen in, and I want you to lean into this, because I think there's something powerful and beautiful for us here. This text, Acts chapter 8, it's right in the middle of a very dynamic transformation that's happening in the church and in the mission of the church. 
Now, when you start off in the book of Acts, it starts off with Jesus with his disciples. And he says, listen, I'm going to give you your marching orders. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. I'm sending you out to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. And they're like, right on. Home city, Jerusalem. And Judea. And they're like, all right, in our region. All right, we're good, we're good. And then he says, and Samaria. And they're like, wait, what? Samaria? Man, I think Jesus has been... Hitting that wine too much, man. Going to the Samaria, to the Samaritans, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then what we see developing through the book of Acts is the result of their witness to the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of his spirit. But one thing you have to appreciate that takes place in the book of Acts is this. Acts chapter 2 through chapter 7 It it tells us about this dynamic spread of the church. The church is growing like wildfire. But one of the things that you need to appreciate is that this was happening in the context of their native culture. They had not yet left their native place. In other words, they were seeing all of this fruitful ministry around the people who were like them. And there was a lot to be excited about. People were coming to faith. People were beginning to live in community. They were taking care of their own poor of their culture. They they were doing some amazing things. They were suffering for the glory of Christ. All of this goodness was happening. But God was not finished with them. This was just scratching the surface of what God wanted to do in terms of his mission through his church. But they were stuck in the groove of their own culture. They were stuck doing ministry around the people who were like them. They saw lots of success and the Lord blessed that. But that the Lord wanted to show them, I got so much more for y'all to do. I got so much more for y'all to do. There is there is a a harvest that is awaiting y'all. But I see that left to yourself. You will never leave your comfort zone to go and get around and love and serve and minister to the people who aren't like you. So what God does is he disciplines his church through persecution. The way in which God gets his people out of their comfort zone, out of their groove, is through a martyrdom. And that's what we have in Acts chapter 7, immediately before our text. Deacon Stephen is told to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. By the religious authorities. They say, give up your faith in Jesus or we're going to stone you. And he says, recant. I can't. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to preach y'all this sermon right now. And he preached them a sermon. And then once they heard the sermon that he preached to them about faith in Christ and his call to them to repent, they stoned him. And it was the stoning of Stephen That caused the scattering of the church. But God scatters his people in order to gather his people. He scatters his people to gather more of his people. And there is this outgoing and incoming of the church. He sends them out and they come back in with more people from the world who need to know the gospel. And they're brought into the family of faith. And here we pick up 
in Acts chapter 8 with the story of one of the men who was scattered through that persecution. And his name is Philip. Philip was a deacon. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 6. He was a good man, full of the spirit. He was, he was helping to lead the charge on serving, but he was also an evangelist. And after Stephen is martyred, Philip winds up down in Samaria. And what the Lord does through Philip is a hinge in the entire history of the Christian church. This is a hinge point. Philip goes and he begins to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. And in verse 8, the text tells us that after believing, there was much joy in that city. But you need to pause to appreciate the surprising grace that Samaria comes into the family of God. Now look, this was a historic division. There was historic animosity between true and pure Jews and those half-breed heretics. That's who the Samaritans were. This went back hundreds of years all the way to when Israel was sent into exile. And when Israel was sent into exile, what happened was another country came in and conquered Israel. And they took out the cream of the crop, all the successful, all the, all the educated and, and, and uh, 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 skilled laborers. They took them out and they left the ordinary common folk to work the land. But then what they did was they imported some of their culture in. And the group that was there mixed together culturally. And they mixed together religiously. So when the pure and true Jews returned from exile... They came back and they said, what is going on with y'all? Y'all have corrupted our culture. You have corrupted our faith. Y'all are half-priests. You are defiled. You are morally stained. Y'all are less than. And there was a historic division ever since that return from exile. It lasted up into Jesus' day, into this very moment, to to the degree that, that they had a rival temple, Mount Gerizim, among the Samaritans. And there was this historic conflict. But what we see in this text is it's the transforming and, and surprising work of God's grace. The people that they would have least expected to embrace the gospel, they receive the gospel in joy. And then what happens is the apostles from Jerusalem, they come to verify that what has happened is the real deal here. And what God does is he breaks his typical pattern by pouring out, waiting until the the apostles get there to pour out the spirit on the Samaritans so that these Jewish apostles would see that these two were fellow heirs and recipients of the spirit of God and they were to be treated like equals, like family, like belongers. God breaks his pattern. This is what the spirit is indicating because he knows that if we're left to our own impulses, we will always practice exclusionary ways and exclusionary lines of thinking toward those people, toward the other. We will not get over our racial pride. We will not get over our ethnocentricity where my culture is the measure of what is good and beautiful and valuable and true always at all times in all places. He knows that we can be caught up into idolatry. 
John Calvin said that your heart is an idol factory. And you know what one of your favorite idols is? Your own culture. And you live within a cultural blindness because of that idolatry. And you measure everyone else off of your own culture. And you make value judgments about people based upon your culture. And it gets even uglier when you theologize it and say, this is truer to God's heart. Because it's like my culture. This is what we're like. But what we see in this text, right? There, there's a lot of argumentation in the evangelical world about are certain gifts of the Spirit still available today? And, and it, it, can people still do these miraculous things? And, and I see these, these crazy people on TV that are supposed to be healing people. Like, There's a lot of argument in evangelical circles about what spiritual gifts are still available today. But we remain obtuse to the general leading, the very clear leading of the Spirit in this text over racial and ethnic and socioeconomic borders. We're more concerned about whether certain gifts are around today, oftentimes, than we are about the clear leading of the Spirit to enter into these kinds of redemptive relationships. This is what's clear in the text. What is clear in this text, I want you to see this. What's clear in the text is if you treat the cross-cultural love and community building of the gospel, if you treat that as you know, one of those things, if, if you're interested in that kind of thing. If you, if you like that kind of thing, you know, some people, that's their deal, and, but it's not my deal. If you treat that, that most critical cross-cultural piece in that way, then you are not registering what the gospel is really about, and you're not in step with the Spirit. That's what the text is saying. This is what the Spirit's doing. Do you see that there is a dialing up of the specificity of the Holy Spirit in this text. We don't have nothing, we, don't, we have nothing near the specificity of the Spirit in terms of leading that we have in this text, all the way up to Acts at this point. Look at this, verse, verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Make a left at the coffee shop and then turn right at the donut shop after that. You see, he's getting specific. He's like, you're not going to miss this. I'm going to lead you to the people that I want to bring into my love. And then later on, he tells them, hey, go run up beside that chariot. He's like, run up beside a chariot? He run up beside a chariot. Make me, you know, he doesn't do that. But the spirit is getting specific and leading them into these cross-cultural directions. This is what the spirit is doing. And this is not just cherry picking one off verses. This is what's going to happen chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Acts. Because this is a hinge point. This is where the gospel goes global. And that was always God's heart. That his glory would cover the earth as the waters do the sea. That was always God's intent. Plan B is C, plan A. This is what God is out to do. And what we see in the text, this is, come on. What we see in this text is that God is not waiting for the world to come to church. He's sending the church to the world. Uh, Let me make this a little clearer. It's good to create a welcoming context on your campus in your RUF. But the completion of that sentiment is not just to wait for the various people group on on your campus to come to your RUF. God wants the RUF to go to the campus. 
He, he wants you to go after and pursue the people of your campus so that you can extend friendship and love and inclusion to them. They may not want it right now, but that, that's not your business. Your business is not to control whether or not they want you. Your business is to tell them that God wants them. That's your calling. There's an activity. There's a proactivity in this text. He's not waiting for the world to come. He's not waiting for the world to come to the church. He's sending the church to the world. And what we need to see is that this cross-cultural love, this cross-cultural community building is at the heart of the Christian faith because it's on the heart of God. It's at the heart of our mission because it's on the heart of God. This is not being politically correct. This is being Christologically conformed. Politics is not the origin of this vision. God is. And he's not giving up on it. Proof? Look at the book of Revelation. Look at the final chapter. God is not about to give up on this plan. But he has demonstrated that he will discipline his people into that direction. Because he loves us. And he wants us to taste something of the goodness and growth of living our lives intertwined with people who force us to examine our bias. People who force us to examine our own heart idolatries, the ugliness inside, our smallness of heart. God wants to grow you in love. And one of his favorite ways of doing that is putting you in relationships with people that force you into some new repentance and some different kinds of prayers. You got to pray different kinds of prayers to live together in love with those who don't share all of your assumptions. But that's the calling, y'all. There was potential here for two different churches to emerge. When the Samaritans came to faith, you know, because there, were, there was rivalry between a, a Jewish temple and a, and a Samaritan temple. There was the potential for there to be a Samaritan Christianity, a Samaritan church, and a Jewish church. But we see God through his spirit squashing that, that divisiveness which I appreciate. God's word, y'all, to the outsider is, you belong. And that is the word that God spoke over you. Do you know that? When you were an outsider? When, I, I like the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. We, we were strangers. We were far off without hope and without God in the world. But there's the divine conjunction. Christ changed it all. And, and he, we were made alive with him. That is our story. And when it is your story, when you know that your story is that you were an outsider who was brought in, then you become someone who delights to bring the outsider in. That's the basic one-on-one gospel here. This is, this is not you know, some addition to the gospel. This is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel says you were an outsider who was brought in. You were alienated and you've been reconciled. You were far off. You've been brought near. You were an enemy and now you're family. Now your work is to go out to the people who are estranged and alienated and, and marginalized and to bring them in to the story of God, bring them into the love of God. Let them get a taste of the riches from God's table. That's your calling. And that brings us to our second point. 
where we consider what it means to share God's word with the outsider. Now, who is this Ethiopian eunuch? And what do we learn about him from the text? Well, the first thing is that he is a black African. That is who the man is. The text says he's an Ethiopian. And and Ethiopia at this time was Cush of the Old Testament. And it it makes reference to what is the modern day central Sudan. All right. He's a black African. He's from the Nubian kingdom. And as an Ethiopian who is a black African, what we see is that the gospel is going to a different racial group. It's going to a different ethnic group. And you know what else? And Jewish Midrash, which was basically uh, the Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament. That's, how, that's when the Jews wrote their commentaries on the Old Testament. That was Midrash. When they talked about Ethiopia in Jewish Midrash, they called it the ends of the earth. So here we see the fulfillment of what Jesus said that his apostles were going to do. They were going to be his witnesses. We just saw Samaria, and now we're going to the ends of the earth, representatively, in the Ethiopian eunuch. We look in the text, and we see that this is a very successful man. He was the CFO of Ethiopia. In other words, he was a baller and a shot caller. He was... He had more dough than a pizza shop. I mean, my man, he, 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 had, he had a lot of success. We see in the text that he can read. He has an Isaiah scroll. And you need to appreciate something about this. He could read at a time where, where only 5% of the world was literate. And one of the things that you got to appreciate about the Christian faith, about the gospel, is that the gospel spread like wildfire in a world that was majority illiterate. And I'm glad that we got a gospel that can, that can minister to people who, who don't have a fancy education. I'm glad that we have a story that doesn't require you to be bookish in order to be close to God. I love the fact that, that in a... In a highly illiterate world the gospel took off and it resonated with people and some of the most profound ministries that took place were from those who weren't thought of as much by the world you know how they used to talk about the disciples the apostles these are a bunch of stupid fishermen but then they saw the spirit was at work through them and they were just like what do you do with that god was like i'm getting all that glory i'm getting all that glory and that's why i picked these knuckleheads That's what he did. But this Ethiopian eunuch, he can read at a time. So he's intellectually sophisticated. All right, check it out. Check it out. Check it out. He's successful. He's balling and shot calling. He's got got money. All right? He's intellectually sophisticated. He's so wealthy that he owns an Isaiah scroll. This was at a time where no one owned books except except temples and books. Government agencies and very wealthy people. He owns an Isaiah scroll. He had a chariot. Balling. He had a chariot. Look, if you were lucky, you might have a donkey. Like, this is the world of the text. If you were lucky, you might have a donkey. If you were upper upper middle class, you might have a horse. But to have a chariot meant that you were somebody of means. He was wealthy. He's really capable. He's successful. He's accomplished, but he's not happy. He's empty. It shows us that even back then, it was a myth to believe that you could get real happiness and real rootedness and real 
solidity and meaning to your life by acquisition of credentials, of money, of whatever. That's a lie. It always has been. He's evidence. He's not happy. He's spiritually empty, and now he's feeling the pain of being rejected. Let me show you that connection in the text. Think about this. This man was a high-ranking official in Ethiopia. And he, we're told, makes a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem. This is hundreds of miles away because he's searching for something. All that he has acquired, all that he has gained in his life, all of his successes have not really met him where he is most needy. And so he takes this long journey. It would have been an, an, a really long journey. It would have been an expensive journey. I mean, it, w- it would have been so long. It would have been long if he had XM radio in his chariot. It, it was long without kids in his chariot. It was a long trip to go there. He is in such a spiritual search mode. But when he gets to the temple, do you know what happens? When he gets to the temple... He's turned away because Old Testament law said that a eunuch could not enter the assembly of the Lord. He goes all that way to be treated like an outsider. When he gets to the temple, he's told your kind is not allowed in here. You are a misfit around here. You can't be a part of what's going on here. He was alienated from God in so many ways because he was alienated from from the temple. He felt, I mean, imagine how he felt, all the money he spent, all the time he spent, all the effort that he made, that long journey of weeks and months only to come and be rejected. Many people have that experience in churches today. Many people have had that experience in their past and in their spiritual lives. They were, they were pushed away. They were rejected. So this Ethiopian eunuch, after being turned away, he begins the long journey to go back home. But something's nagging him. Something's nagging him. Remember, he had an Isaiah scroll. And undoubtedly, He was reading that scroll on his journey up to Jerusalem. It was a long ride. And so he's reading through his scroll. And what's nagging him after being rejected at the temple is he remembered reading something in in Isaiah, in his prophecy. He remembered reading something. And he was trying to locate that thing. And what he was remembering was Isaiah 56, which says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And listen to this. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So why was I turned away? Why, w- why was I rejected? Why, why, was I, why was I treated like an outsider? He's, he's remembering what he read in that scroll. So he's, he's turning the pain of his, of his marginalization is, just, is, is messing with him. And, and he's turning through the scroll and, he, and he's trying to find that place again because he's trying to figure out well, how do I reconcile the fact that I've been rejected, that I've been ostracized from that place? I need that God, but I've been ostracized. How do I reconcile this? And as he's turning through that scroll, he comes to that curious passage in Isaiah 53 again. And, and when he's reading through that, this is, this is the section that he's reading. This is what he's reading as he's approaching that text that was in his head about the eunuch. He reads this. He, he reads, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And as he's reading this people read aloud at that time. And as he's reading this text aloud, look at the providence of God. Because in that moment, God sends Philip directly to that man's chariot. And as he's reading this aloud, he's reading about the servant of the Lord who would receive the, the penalty to heal broken people. He's reading about one who would be cut off so that others could be brought in. Here comes Philip running alongside a chariot. He's like, do you understand what you're reading? You know, usually when people run beside my car, I like to tell them jump on in too. You know, so the, the, the man, he's turning and he says, how will I understand if someone doesn't teach me? You got to appreciate the man's humility. I mean, he could have looked at Philip and, and said, man, I didn't get where I'm at by dealing with folk who ain't got no chariot. You know, like <laughs> get away from me. But he's so, oh, he's feeling the pain, the, the need For someone to resolve this thing for him. And so he invites Philip up onto his chariot. And undoubtedly the two men exchange information. And and, and Philip's like, hey man, like, how did you get here? And the the eunuch tells him, man, I I came up to the temple. I wanted to worship this God of Israel. I wanted to, I wanted to, I'm in need, man. I went to meet this God, but I was rejected. I was turned away. Philip's like, 
Man, how you get an Isaiah scroll, dog? Where, 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 where you get that? Because, man, with that text you were reading, it, it, let me tell you something. I know that you were turned away because Old Testament law said that eunuchs could not enter into the presence of the Lord in the temple. But I want to tell you something. That passage that you were remembering about the eunuch being brought in, let me tell you how it is that the eunuch has a future in the presence of the Lord. This text in Isaiah 53 is showing you exactly how the outsider can be brought in. Because the king of kings, the Lord of glory, entered into this world and was treated like an outsider, you can be treated like an insider, my friend. That prophecy comes true in Jesus, and your union with him is what gives you everything that is promised in this text. You will have a name. You will be included. The Lord will receive you. Don't you see it in this text? The gospel story that converted this eunuch, the gospel story was that one day the Lord sent his son into the fractured world. And when Jesus came into this world, he made a beeline for us. He made a beeline for us. He made a beeline for us by redeeming us at the cross. That's how he made his way to us. He made his way to us through the cross. That's how he rescued us. Christ was despised and rejected by men so that we could be delivered and received by God. He became as one from whom men hide their faces, Isaiah says. He became as one from whom men hide their faces so that we could become those to whom God reveals his smile. The Lord laid upon him all our iniquities so that he could lay upon us all of his love and all of his grace and all of his promises. That's the good news of God's grace. At the cross, Jesus becomes an outsider so that we can become insiders. He's treated like an enemy so that we can be treated like family. He made his grave with the wicked so that we can make our home with the righteous God. The greatest surprise of the gospel is that people like you and me are included. I want you to know and realize something. America is not the locus of Christianity. We are the ends of the earth, y'all. And if it weren't for this, this cross-cultural transformation that happened in this text, if it weren't for the ministry of Philip, the work of the Spirit through Philip to the Samaritans, to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then what happens with Saul, and then what happens with, with the, uh, Cornelius, we would not know of his mercies. This is where the gospel begins to go global. This is where we see the fuller picture of God's plan beginning to unravel. This is it. This is the paradigm. This is our calling. This is what God was after the whole time. If your mission can be accomplished without cross-cultural connection, then your mission is too small. Y'all hear what I'm saying? If your mission can be accomplished without cross-cultural connection, then you're either pursuing the wrong things or you're pursuing the right things in the wrong way. This is on God's heart, and so it must be on our heart. What if we were the kind of people who made a beeline toward the other, toward the outsider, toward the marginalized? What would that look like? What could we become? What would Sukkot 2018 look like 
If each and every one of you took ownership and took responsibility for not waiting for the other to come into your world, not waiting for the other to come into your mix, not expecting them to jump all the hurdles, but you were the kind of person who had such a bead on the heart of God that you were after them and you were praying them into your place and you were extending friendship, extending hospitality, extending the love of Christ, being that kind of community. What could this be? That's the kind of dreaming that this text invites us to. This is the beauty of the cross-cultural life of God in this text. I'm going to close by saying this. I like going to the mall. Stay with me. I like going to the mall, not because I like going shopping, but because I like going to the food court. Because at the food court, there are these wonderful people who stand out in front of the restaurants holding these trays. And they got these little toothpicks and these delectable little pieces of meat. And I love it because I'll walk by and they'll say, hello, sir, would you like to try some bourbon chicken? And I say, why, yes, I would. And I snag one of them little delicious bourbon chickens and I pop it in my mouth and when I get right here I say mm, I need to come back around to that but I don't want to look greedy and so you know I look like I could be from a lot of different cultures and a lot of different places so I, I make my way around the food court one more time and I you know I try to change my voice a little bit and I say hola que es eso si gracias mucho gusto okay nos vemos okay And then the next time I come around, I try to fake a little Arabic. You know, I'm coming back through. But here's the deal. Y'all think I'm lying, but my, my family knows I'm telling the truth. I just keep walking by, snagging all of But here's the deal. Here's the point. Here's the point. Come back, y'all. Come back. Here's the point. Why are those people standing out there with those trays? Because they want you to get a little taste so that you will enter in and get the real thing. They want you to come in and get the full shebang. And we as God's church are supposed to be an appetizer of glory. People are supposed to get a taste of the love that will exist in glory and want the full thing. They're supposed to get a taste of the unity and the love and the harmony that exists among people in glory And they want to get the real thing. We are supposed to be a foretaste. We're supposed to be a brochure of glory. People are supposed to see that the final chapter of God's story is beginning to unfold now. That's our calling. That's what God wants from us. That's what God is after in the life of his church. And it's this cross-cultural picture, my friends, that should shape our repentance. The, the kinds of things for which we need to ask the Lord's forgiveness. This is the kind of text that should also shape our faith. What kind of things do we need to trust the Lord for? What kind of things do we need to pray for? What are we longing to see? This should shape the cruciformity of our Christianity. In what ways do we need to die to ourselves so that we can live together in love? In what ways do I need to carry my cross? In what ways do I need to live up into the mission of God? You see, this is 
This is the foretaste of, of, what, of what the kingdom is about. And I want to encourage you to live up into this. Start asking these questions together. What would it look like for our campus to be this beautiful expression of God's redeeming love? How might we as a campus communicate the breadth and the length and the width and the depth and the height of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? That's what cross-cultural is. It's all about the love of God and Jesus Christ. How might we do this together? How can we start plotting and scheming on loving the people and the diversity of our campus? It's not about diversity for diversity's sake. We want a doxological diversity. You know what doxology is? It's glory. It's a diversity that is born from glory. And it's a diversity that is anticipating and leading to glory. That's the kind of diversity that we want. We want to love people because we believe that a triune God is is expressed in his beauty and image bearers of diverse cultures and ethnicities and personalities. We believe that it glorifies God to love people freely and fully, not because of what they can do for us, but because of what he has done for us. We, want, we, we long to see them in our mix because the most beautiful witness to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. That's what Christine Pohl, a theologian, said in her book on community. I love that thought. I want to challenge you to take this back to your campus. I want to challenge you to lovingly confront your friends when they are not acting in line with the Spirit of God and the truth of the gospel. When they practice ugly, exclusionary things toward the people you want to see in your place. Challenge them in love and say, look, God deserves better from us. We can do better. Come on. We can do this. It's not trying to be a a spoil sport, but love is the most important Virtue of the Christian faith. And expressing that love should be our chief concern, our greatest delight, our greatest commitment. So let's ask the Lord to bless the work of RUF. Let's pray that Suko 2018 will add many different people and cultures and subcultures and, and, and different people in, in these campuses that you're on, on this beach, in this place. Let's pray for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these students for the work that you're doing in their lives. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you are more committed to us than we are to ourselves. You're more committed to seeing your love spread on these campuses than we are. And Lord, we pray for these beloved campus ministers who are, who are laboring and working and serving and trying to care for these students and counsel them and, and deploy them. Lord, we pray that you would, you would give them the grace to see this kind of fruit in their ministry. We pray, Lord, that these students would be excited about participating and seeing this mission unfold on their campus. But we pray for a glorious partnership between these campus ministers and these students to see the beauty of cross-cultural community forming on these campuses so that you will get the glory for bringing people together who don't seem to have any business being together. Because Jesus is that worthy. Do this work, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.